worship our God. As we have just got done addressing one another and addressing our God through His Word, let's now hear Him address us. Our passage today is Leviticus 21 through 22. We read chapter 21 for the scripture reading, so now let's give our attention as we hear God speak to us in Leviticus chapter 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be. The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening, and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear their, their lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest. Or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing, but if a priest buys a slave and is as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things, but if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the Lord or of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord. And sanctifies them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep, or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. 
And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or a scab, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they shall not be accepted for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall not it, it shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, I am the Lord. Well, this concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. One of the things we get to enjoy in our society are vacations. Most employment includes paid days off or vacations that we may get away for a while for some relaxation and enjoyment to break up the monotony of our busy lives and to escape the regular stress of our life. Sometimes they're actually called getaways precisely because it is getting away from that ordinary stress. In a sense, taking a vacation or getting away is like getting away from the curse as much as possible. A part of the curse stated in Genesis 3 is, by the sweat of your brow you shall gain the earth's fruit. Well, vacation is like getting away from that for a bit. Take a break from that labor. And also getting away from the curse of our weather, the cold and the wind. We pay a lot of money to get away from aspects of the curse. But what if there is a place where you can get as far away from the curse as possible? Like a curse-free zone. Well, this is actually what we're seeing with the tabernacle in Leviticus. In this tabernacle, God is reestablishing His presence with His people. 
It's like a miniature Eden in the midst of the wilderness. With even the two cherubim on the veil that covers the way into God's presence, replicating that Garden of Eden where God once walked with man in the cool of the day. But ever since sin, man was driven out of God's presence. How will man ever get back into God's presence? Well, the tabernacle is revealing that to us. And with this picture, we see that there's aspects of the curse, visible aspects of the curse, that are removed. And this is what is going on with the special instructions regarding the priest. These are not permanent. Rather, they are a picture where the curse does not reign in this curse-free zone, if you will. The priest could not be around death or mourning. They could not marry a divorced or widowed woman. They could not have any physical blemish. And they definitely could not participate in the cult of the dead worship or give their daughter over to sexual immorality. And why is that? Well, because these things, death, legitimate divorce and widowhood, bodily blemishes are all part of the curse stemming from living in a sin-cursed world. But God wants to picture a space where the curse does not dominate, where the curse is being reversed, where His life-giving presence reigns as it did in Eden and as it especially will in that eternal tabernacle, as we read in Revelation 21, where it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is now with man. He will be their God and they will be His people, referring to the new heavens and the new earth where the curse is no more. And so the priests and the sacrifices must be freed from these visible aspects of the curse. And even still, we see a lot of bloodshed and animal death here. But that is because in this, God is revealing how the curse will be conquered. It will be by the most pure high priest offering up the perfect sacrifice. Are we looking for an escape from the curse in this difficult world? This world of trouble. If we look in the wrong place, it will not satisfy us. We look to the place where the curse will be no more. And that is in the presence of God. Even now through communion with our God and looking forward to that new heavens and that new earth. So we're going to look at six aspects in relation to the curse, revealing how God will deliver us from it. The first is this, death. We read in verse 1 that none of the priests shall make himself unclean for the dead. Now remember, in the Levitical system, you became unclean when you had contact with the dead. And you had to do that when you had to remove a loved one who had died from their house. You had to touch the body. And if you did, you would become unclean until the evening and had to go through ritual purity rites. However, with the priest, they cannot make themselves unclean by the dead. They have to stay away from death. That is part of the curse because they are part of this realm where the curse is not reigning, this curse-free zone. They are in the realm of the holy, whereas verse 6 says they offer up the food and bread of God. 
these offerings, these sacrificial offerings that the people of God bring. This is a holy place. And a holy place is more than a place that's morally pure. Remember, holy means more than just morally set apart. This refers to being set apart in a special sense. In this sense, set apart from the curse. However, there are merciful exceptions according to verses 2-3. through three. They may make themselves unclean. That is, take care of the dead bodies and attend the funerals of those who are their closest relatives, which are detailed in those verses. But in these funerals, they may in no way participate in this cult of the dead pagan worship where they would make bald patches on their beards. They would make bald patches on their heads and they would cut themselves and make markings on their body in order to look dead to participate in this ritual. This false worship must be far from them. They cannot defile themselves in any way with these practices. Now the standard is even higher when it comes to the high priest. We read in verse 11 that he cannot go near the dead body of even his own parents. And verse 10 says that he cannot let his hair hang loose or tear his garments. That is, he cannot express any mourning. The, the customary way in which they express mourning back then. This is because he has the anointing oil on his head. This anointing oil is a visible sign of being set apart by the Holy Spirit to serve in this capacity. Because he is so set apart, because he is a picture of what is to come, where the curse is no more, he cannot be near death, and he cannot express mourning as a result of the curse. And what God is revealing here is that He will remove death and mourning from us. Death and mourning are a result of the curse. When I say mourning, I'm not talking about sunrise. I'm talking about sadness, in case you're wondering. Death and mourning are a result of the curse. It is righteous judgment because of our sin. But our merciful God will remove it from us forever in that everlasting tabernacle, in the new heavens and the new earth, where God will dwell with us forever. Revelation 21, 3-4 speaks of this when it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For former things have passed away. This is the removal of the curse. And this is what Christ has secured For us, Christ, our pure high priest, by His perfect sacrifice, has conquered the curse for us. And in so doing, has conquered death and mourning. As John Owen put, it was the death of death and the death of Christ. The second aspect is divorce and defilement. 
We read in verses 7 and 14 that all the priests shall not marry a woman who is a prostitute or who has been defiled, that is, who has committed sexual immorality. And he must not marry a woman who has been divorced or widowed, a one who has been previously married. Rather, as verses 13 and 14 say, he can only marry a virgin. Now again, we have to understand why God is saying this to these priests in this context, tying it into the whole storyline of the Bible. It is because in the tabernacle, he is a picture in a realm that's free of the curse, which is a sign of what he intends to do in removing the curse from us. This is not a command that you are not allowed to remarry or to marry someone who has been previously married, but lost their spouse due to death or a biblical divorce. The reason the Levitical priests are not allowed to do this is because remarriage due to death or divorce is part of living in a sin-cursed world, even though it is legitimate to get remarried after a spouse dies or after a biblical divorce. But God is picturing priests who are visibly freed from the aspects of the curse. This is why they cannot be around dead. This is why they can't mourn dead relatives. And this is why, as we'll see in just a moment, they can't have bodily defects. And this is also why, as verse 14 goes on to say, the priest can only marry someone within their tribe, the tribe of Levi, so as to not intermix their line, so that their family name remains pure in this line. And that would also, and what would also defile their family name, according to verse 9, is if one of the priest's daughters became a prostitute. For this she must be burned to indicate judgment from God that purifies. And what this reveals is that one day God will remove this aspect of the curse as well. He will remove all division, all broken relationships, all broken covenants, and the sin and death that separates us from one another. There will be no more goodbyes in heaven. There will be perfect peace, perfect relationships, perfect purity, and fellowship with both God and one another forever. But that came at the cost of Christ being separated from God in His humanity in order to remove the sin that separates us from God. A third aspect is the defect of the priest. In verses 16-24, through 24, we read of 12 physical defects that disqualify a Levite from serving as a priest. These 12 defects are not exhaustive, but cover any bodily defect. And these 12 parallel the 12 mentioned with regards to the sacrifice that we're going to see in the next chapter. Now, this is not an abiding law that disqualifies men uh, from the ministry today. If that was the case, I would have had to take a sabbatical back in October when I scoped myself. Only a few of you got that. Rather, these bodily blemishes and physical defects are a result of the curse. And by preventing priests with these from serving in the tabernacle, God, again, is picturing this curse-free zone, a realm where the curse does not reign. And then 
we read of ceremonial defects in chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. These were covered in chapters 11 through 15. These are the things that make somebody ceremonially unclean. That is, they can't partake of the holy things in the presence of God. So any Levite within leprous, that is a skin disease, or any abnormal bodily discharge, a genital discharge, or one who comes in contact with an unclean animal, that priest must go through whatever ceremonial ritual makes him clean so that he may resume his duties as priest and eat of the holy things. And the penalty, according to verse 9, is death if they fail in this area. Now what we are seeing here is that one day, God will remove all defects in our bodies from the curse. We will receive a glorified body. Aging, the process of dying, will be no more. There will be no blemishes, defects, blindness, lameness, or any handicap because of the work of Christ. And this also points to removing any spiritual defect from us. The sin that we struggle with. The besetting sins that we have. These God will remove. As 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see Him, we will be like Him. For we will see Him. And death and spiritual sin will be no more. And so for us who struggle against sin, which is all of us who believe, that sin that discourages us as we see our sin, and we may, be we may be tempted to turn a blind eye to it in order to deal with the guilt of our conscience rather than face it honestly. May we instead be encouraged that one day God will remove that sin from us. That God is at work in us even now, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That He who began that good work, He will be faithful to complete it. And so may that encourage us to continue to strive against sin that still remains and clings in us, knowing that Christ has forever atoned for that sin and will one day forever remove all spiritual defects in us. Fourth aspect, as we could say, difference. That is, someone is part of a different family line than the priest, then he may not partake of the holy food. We see this in verses 22, 10 through 16 with regards to the instruction about eating the holy thing. These are the things that God's people dedicate to the Lord. Sacrifices, grain, fruit, that they then bring to the tabernacle that only the priest may eat. And only the priest's family may eat as well. No lay person may eat of a holy thing, as verse 10 says. No foreigner, no guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. The criterion by which someone may eat of the holy food is if he is in the priest's household. This includes the slave that the priest has bought, as verse 11 says. If a priest's daughter marries a layman who is not a Levitical priest, then she's no longer a part of this priest's family. She may not partake of it. But if she gets divorced or her spouse dies, 
and she comes back under her father's household, then she may eat of the holy things again. The dividing line is whether or not someone is a part of the priest's family. If you're a part of the priest's family, you may eat of the holy things. If you aren't and you accidentally do that, you have committed a sacrilege and you must offer up the appropriate sacrifice, the guilt and reparation offering. Now, how in the world does this apply to us? Well, whether or not we may partake of the holy things, the ordinances of the church, of baptism, and the Lord's Supper, is whether or not we are in the great high priest household. And we are in his family. If we have believed in him, if we have trusted in him alone for our salvation, this makes us adopted children of God, part of His family, having been regenerated by His Spirit, the Lord has purchased us who were once slaves of sin to be His slaves, to serve Him who is our Master. And He is our Master. He's a good Master who takes care of us, who paid the price of His own blood to secure us as His slaves. We who were once under the wrath and curse of God and dead in our trespasses and sins, by His blood, we are now His. And He is ours. We were bought with a price. We are to honor and glorify Him in our bodies. And as part of the grace of being in His household, we may partake of the holy food, the Lord's Supper, Worship Him by the Spirit. A fifth aspect is defect of the sacrifice. We see in chapter 22, verses 17 through 30, the Lord remind the, reminds the priests of the requirements for a sacrifice. Now this particularly pertains to the free will and vow offerings. I think the reason why God focuses on just these offerings is because the free will and vow offerings were not required. They were offered up freely. A free will offering is when the worshiper says, I love the Lord, and I want to bring Him something to show my gratitude and praise to Him. So he would bring a free will offering. And a vow offering is when he makes a vow of his own volition, such as, if the Lord grants me safe travel, I will offer up to Him a sacrifice. And so when the Lord fulfilled that, He would fulfill His vow by offering up a sacrifice. But because these are free will offerings, that is, they're not required by the law, temptation might be to say, eh, it doesn't matter if it has a blemish. It doesn't matter if it has a defect. What does it matter to the Lord? Well, it does matter to the Lord. Even in this, the Lord cares about whether or not the sacrifice has a defect. And so the sacrifice must have no defect. The only exception is in verse 23, where for the free will offering alone, one limb may be shorter than another, and we're not exactly sure why that is. But any other defect is unacceptable. The defects listed here parallel the defects listed in the previous chapter with regards to the priest. Again, this is revealing that both the priest and the sacrifice must be pure and perfect, free from the curse. And this includes what God goes on to say in verses 26 to 30. 
In verse 27, we read that newborn animals must not be sacrificed until the eighth day. Now, we're not 100% sure why this is, but it seems likely that it's tied to avoiding the curse. Dying young is part of the curse, while living to a good old age is seen as a blessing. So after the Kaffir kid, uh, that is a baby goat, has lived seven days, then it may be used as a sacrifice on the eighth day. Now this seems rather young still uh, to us, but seven is symbolic in Scripture to refer to completion. And so after any sacrifice has lived seven days, then it may be offered so it's not associated with the curse. And related to this is verse 28, which says to not kill the mother and her young on the same day. Having two generations killed on the same day was a sure sign of the curse, of being cursed. We see this in the punishment of Saul, where he and his sons both died on the same day. And verses 29 through 30 remind them that nothing is to be left over till the next day. There could be no risk of defilement, of becoming spoiled, or the meat being accidentally eaten by an unauthorized person. Now, that the sacrifices are killed indicates that they're standing in the place of the sinner in receiving the curse of death. However, the sacrifices themselves can in no way demonstrate defilement or defects of the curse. The sacrifices must be shown to be without defect, unaffected by the curse themselves, because they are taking the curse of death, not for themselves, but for another. And this points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this points us to Christ. He Himself was completely undefiled by sin. As Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Our Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly pure in every way, freed from all aspects of sin. He was separated from sinners, and that He was holy. He was perfect. In no way had any sin of His own. But He then suffered the curse, being put to death on the shameful cross, bearing the full-fledged wrath of God. Why? Because of anything found in Him? No. But because of our sin. Because we deserve to stand condemned, but He stood condemned in our place. He took the whole curse for our sin so that we would be forever delivered from the curse of sin. We are delivered from the penalty of our sin. We are delivered from the power of our sin. And one day, we will be delivered from the presence of sin because Christ became a curse for us. And this brings us to the sixth and final aspect, which is deliverance. Verses 31 through 33. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. The conclusion here is that God's people are to keep His commandments. God is God and we are not. We are the creature. He is the Creator. We exist to do God's will. His name is to be sanctified among us. That is, He is to be set apart as holy among us, regarded with the utmost reverence and worth. And so our lives are to be lived in honor to Him, to glorify His name by obeying His will and doing whatever He commands us or forbids us from doing. As we learn in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the basis for, for us doing this? What is the reason for us doing this? Well, the end of verse 32 says that it is because He is the Lord who sanctifies us. He is the One who has set us apart as holy to Himself. He has done this positionally by calling us out of darkness, out of this world, and into His marvelous light. He has done this, as we go on to read in verse 33, through our redemption in Christ, that we have been brought out of our old life, out of our life of slavery in Egypt, and into a new life with Him, through the blood of a Passover lamb. So it's because of our deliverance, beloved, that we no longer walk according to the ways of the world, according to the ways of Satan according to our own selfish ways, but rather we live our lives in obedience to God's commands because we have been bought with a price. And we are to rejoice that we will one day, one day soon, be fully freed from every aspect of the curse. We are to look forward to that promised inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for us. We do not find our ultimate hope and escape from the curse in this world, but in the world to come. Because Christ, our pure priest and perfect sacrifice, has become a curse for us that we may forever dwell in that ultimate and only place where we find a curse free zone. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to look not to this world, but to the world to come. We do thank you for all the gifts and, and graces that you give us in this world. We want to be thankful for them. We want to enjoy them. We want to glorify you for them. Now you bless us with so many things, and we want to bless your name for that. Not feel guilty for those things. But we also want to know that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That we are looking forward to that city whose founder and builder is God. That eternal tabernacle where the curse is no more. There is no more death, dying, mourning, or any such thing. 
Because Christ suffered the curse for our sin to bring us to You, O God. Oh, Father, help our unbelief. Help us to believe. Help us to fully rest on Christ, that pure High Priest who offered up Himself as the perfect sacrifice. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.